Welcome to Brook USA on the Road. Our mission at Brook USA is to significantly improve the welfare of working horses, donkeys, and mules, and the people they serve throughout Asia, Africa, the Middle East, the Americas, and the Caribbean by raising funds and responsibly directing them to the areas of greatest need. Brook USA connects private philanthropists with their passion for helping relieve the suffering of working equines and their owners. In each podcast episode, you'll hear a report from one of our board members on the current initiatives for our organization. You'll also enjoy updates from our Brook USA ambassadors, who range from top-level international writers to best-selling authors. I'm your host, Julianne Neal. In this episode, you'll have the opportunity to learn more about Brook USA, a nonprofit, board led organization dedicated to alleviating the suffering of working equines and the people they serve in the developing world. In this episode of Brook USA on the Road, we're following our fundraising event, the Sunset Polo and White Party Special Edition Latin America. We'll have a conversation today with Lisa Baer, current board member, and Michael Silver of Prisma Imaging. Lisa will help us catch up on current funding campaigns, including the Food Plot Initiative in Nicaragua and the Power of One. Michael can explain why he chose Brook USA as Prisma Imaging's official charity. Later in the podcast, you'll hear from Farrier Jeff Pauley and Dr. Julia Wilson, Brook USA board member and executive director to the Minnesota Board of Veterinary Medicine. They'll chat about equine care both in the United States and in the Brook USA targeted areas around the world. So Lisa and Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. Great to be here. Well, I have to say, this is this is going to be an interesting one. The podcast is called Brook USA on the Road, and this is the first time we've actually had both sides of the country. So we're speaking from Florida and South Carolina between Lisa and I, and then, Michael, you're all the way in California. So I do feel like we're a little bit on the road today, so that's kind of fun. I want to start by talking a little bit about Brook USA, which is why we are here. And Lisa, you've been a board member for a while. Um, can you tell us how long and what led you to this organization? What what do you do as a board member? Sure. Thanks, Julianne. I'd be happy to. Uh, so I joined Brook USA. This is my second year, a three-year board term. Um, how I got involved is I am an equestrian. I moved here um, from New York area uh, many years ago because I was competing uh, in show jumping. And while coming back and forth, made the decision to move and then started getting interested in polo. Um, so through my various connections um, to the organization, uh, people that I was friends with through the International Polo Club, I got the invite to attend the first Brook USA Sunset Polo event years ago. Um, and it was such an amazing event as a first time event. It was so well orchestrated. And I continued to really support that event throughout its life. And through that, they asked me to be on the honorary committee, which I agreed to do. And shortly thereafter, after another amazing successful white party um, I had the honor of being asked to join the board, which I graciously accepted because I really believe in this cause for Brook USA. Wow. Well, I, I have heard about the competitive side of the polo teams that participate in that event. So that I, I, I'm admiring you already from a distance for that one. So what is it about Brook USA's mission that is so meaningful, do you think? You know, I think anybody listening to this probably knows that at Brook USA, you know, the organization is really focused on helping working donkeys, horses, mules, and even most importantly, the people that serve them. And so it's not just an animal mission. It's the human element of what these animals bring to these families and needs and the importance um, that they really play in the family unit to you know, carry goods and services and plow fields. And, and those things are just basic necessities uh, in the countries where we do our best work. Um, so that to me means it's a, it's a human cause and it's an animal cause combined. That keeps coming up in all the conversations I have. And, and Michael, we're going to get to you in one second because creativity between the two of you and the different things that you do is pretty special. But it really shown for me in something that I read about Lisa in um, an interview that you did. I think it was with Palm Beach, a Palm Beach um, newspaper. And you're quite a rebel. 
I'm just going to say it outright. You are just from the beginning, Michael, I don't know if you know this or not, but she was almost fired from a job when she was probably a teenager for cutting her brown polyester bell-bottom pants. Working, I guess it was at a KFC or somewhere. Yeah, it was at Geno's, which was in Pennsylvania, and they served KFC. And it wasn't fashionable at the time to really have bell-bottoms nor wear polyester. And so I took my sewing skills, um, you know, at hand and I, I made them skinnier and I, I almost got fired for defacing company property. So lesson learned. That was what struck me when I read that. And I thought she's not only is she a rebel, she's creative. And that's that's part of what both of you do. So um, I thought it'd be kind of fun if if we talked a little bit about your insight on business. And so what what would you say, Lisa, is the best business book you ever read? You know, for me, it's the book of lessons. I think that, you know, I have to be honest, I, I read business books, but what I find to be most valuable and really kind of creating lessons learned and learning from other experiences is going to conferences. And back in 2010, I was extremely fortunate to be awarded one of uh, the top winning women by Ernst & Young. At the time, I had a company called the Hobart Group, and we were the largest advertising agency really focusing on the reimbursement of prescription drugs by the managed care entities. Um, and so I was chosen for my work in those agencies and was able to attend uh, their strategic growth forum, which takes place every year um, in the fall in Palm Springs, not a bad place to be. And my first year, I was fortunate enough to see Richard Branson speak and Bill Ford. And I think some of the things that folks like that who have really achieved significant success in their own fields, um, they said some really smart things that I really kind of taken uh, advantage of, of the advice given to me at a very young point in my career. One is, um, if you fail, fail fast. Uh, we all make mistakes as CEOs in business and to kind of drag on a situation or commiserate about it doesn't help you really change course. And so I think that um, the need to analyze, to, excuse me, analyze a situation and be able to pivot very quickly um, so that you can learn from that mistake and, and move on for me has been a, a very important learning. I think the other thing is when you're an entrepreneur, you tend to hire people close to you when you're in a startup. And what you see is as the business evolves, Perhaps those people that were really good contributors early on do not grow and scale with the organization. And that's another situation where you feel if you're making a lot of changes to move around a person to make it work, it's probably not somebody who's meant to be with the organization long term. So those are hard things to address because there's obviously a human element. Um, to making mistakes like that and have to, to, to let somebody go from an organization. But those are the toughest parts of being a CEO. And so I really have to mentally coach myself through making some of those tough decisions and executing on them. Oh, absolutely. And Michael, I'm curious with you and your work with Prisma Imaging, have you found any, of, any similarities in what Lisa was saying? What was, first of all, what was the best business book you've ever read and why? Well, I was a little nervous about answering this question second, just in case I picked the same book Lisa did, or the same authors, but that's, that's not the case. But they're actually, you know, I, I do have somebody in mind and, and a specific book, and, and I think you'll see there are certain parallels. And so one of my favorite authors that I've learned a lot from and who I strongly recommend is Malcolm Gladwell. And specifically, the book I'm thinking about is Blink, which if you haven't read it, it, um, it specifically addresses the apparent phenomena um, behind, you know, things that seem really simple, but there's really a lot of complicated things behind it. Like, for example, you know, why were the Beatles so good? I mean, who doesn't love the Beatles? Or why did Bill Gates become Bill Gates? So in reading the book, what it does is it, ex it explains that, you know, there's often a lot of detail and time and effort that goes into these incredible accomplishments. I mean, for example, I don't think anybody knew that the Beatles played in obscurity uh, in burlesque halls uh, in the early part of their career, or that Bill Gates was noodling around with uh, computers long before anybody had any idea how central they'd become in our lives. So observing these sort of things, and the, the book just has, I mean, it's just example after an example. So what I found is that in, in learning and understanding this, it, it just it's disbanded this, this idea that we have of overnight success. And it's sobering because it, it, it helps you see that 
in uh, you know accomplishing anything, there's usually going to be a lot of time, work, and effort that goes into it. So it helps me be a little bit less frustrating uh, in when I am trying to do something that's really difficult and, and having an appreciation for the process and the time that that might take. Well, as we get more into your work with Prisma, I, I'm interested because I, our listeners won't see this, but I'm seeing this phenomenal backdrop behind you as we speak. And um, attention to detail has to be something that has been crucial to your work. And so that I need to I need to pick that book up. I think that sounds pretty interesting. Have, do you have business advice that that someone has given you that you've maybe applied to Prisma that has been special or anything that you want to share with us on that? Well, okay, to answer that question, I'm going to refer to a line from uh, from a pretty famous Kenny Rogers song. And I know once I say it, everybody's going to recognize it. And I was going to say, you know, I want to guess, but I won't, I won't subject to that. And it, it's know when to hold them and know when to fold them. And, uh, you know, so what I've learned in, um, you know, as an entrepreneur, I'm, I'm basically wired to be always thinking about businesses or new ideas or new innovations. And I'm sure everybody's going to agree that initially every idea seems like utterly amazing and, and incredible and it just can't fail. Um, but that, you know, through my experience, um, which, again, I've gotten a few fingers cut off up to my elbows, um, <laughs> you know, I've learned that, you know, that there are ways that you can look and uh, look at something a little bit more objectively because um, a lot of things are, are typically overlooked, you know, you know, through inexperience or just through, um, you know, being uh, just not seeing the reality. So um, in, you know, so the, the good news is, is that there's there's things that we can do to avoid this, you know, to stop throwing good money after bad um, or to really be able to objectively determine if an idea is any good. And that's just simple market research. I mean, in this day and age with the Internet, there's a lot of publicly available information that's going to really, you know, answer a lot of questions for you and, and, you know, determine whether it's worth spending, you know, your, your time and capital on, um, you know, so another thing that I would also highly suggest is have an open mind and speak to experienced smart people, but I can't emphasize the open-mindedness because if you're not able to do that, you're just going to continue to think what you think. And if you're not on the right path, you're just going to go down a wormhole and waste a lot of time and money. So I think, you know, all these things are, are what I would suggest uh, in terms of, um, you know, just good, solid business advice. Absolutely. Great advice on those. I, I would put you on the spot and ask you to sing that song, but I'll take you out, let you off the hook with that. So Lisa, how about you? What's the best, best business advice you ever received? And do you still apply it now? Um, I do. I mean, one of the things I think was a self-taught lesson. I think when I was uh, a CEO and the company started to scale, I was finding myself being a little bit too reactive and too emotional. Uh, <laughs> advertising is a business of people um, and very creative people and a lot of type A's. And I think that sometimes I would be in experience where I, I would go to bed at night and wish I'd reacted differently, wish I would have had my facts straight. And so I went through this self-taught process that every night when I felt like I had done something, but if I had the opportunity to change, how would I do it differently and really train my mindset to take a breath and think about that mistake and apply it toward the next opportunity um, where it might have um, you know, some similarity of a mistake I made in the past. But I also had to do it in the positive. If I did something that was kind of a change in behavior because I had made mistakes and knew I had to modify, you know, my approach as a CEO as the company grew, um, then I would tell myself, this is how I need to handle things, you know, when things are going well. And so I think it was just kind of, uh, it was self-advice. It was mentally being able to accept responsibility for mistakes and really training myself to react differently. Um, so that I could become the best CEO I could. So that to me was really um, empowering to be able to do that self-analysis and be very thoughtful in how I would evolve my style. I mean, it sounds like the business side of your life has got to be so time consuming. Do you have time to even ride? I know you mentioned that horses brought you to Florida, but do you, <laughs> do you have time? Um, well, it's not a time issue anymore. I, I've, I've just recently exited from my second venture. It's more the ability of somebody of my age to be able to withstand the falls that coming with show jumping. So to answer your questions, I do still ride. I have stopped competing um, because I've broken a lot of bones, um, never in a show, always just 
practicing for one. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but I, I do still ride. My daughter rides. My horses uh, still continue to compete here uh, at the Winter Equestrian Festival in Wellington. Now, do you miss jumping? I mean, I know I used to um, do eventing, and I don't miss the jumping part. I love dressage now, but do you? Miss- I, I mean, you're really brave to take on eventing. I mean, talk about a score yeah. with a, a lot of hiatus. <laughs> I think, you know, I, I've been at the show a couple times already, uh, just again, watching my horses being competed by other folks. And, you know, there's a lot of anxiety <laughs> that comes with being in the warm up ring and going in and wanting to do your best job. And I always put a lot of pressure on myself. So I don't miss the stress aspect of it. Um, but the environment itself and being part of it. Yeah, there's certainly an element that um, I miss. And but I also remind myself to be thankful for the fact that I I did compete you know, for 10, 15 years, and I'll never be an expert at the sport. I don't have the natural talent that a lot of these people that go to the top levels have, but I really had amazing uh, relationships with my horses. I had an amazing trainer. Um, I got the opportunity to travel all over the United States and compete at some of the best shows. And and that show environment is, um, you know, there's a lot of adrenaline that comes out when you finish a class and you do well. So that, that feeling I do miss. Yeah. How did you start riding? I mean, were you as a little child, did you love horses? So I did. Um, and I, I grew up um, in a suburb, or kind of a, a country area outside of York, Pennsylvania, and there were horses there. And my parents didn't have any money, but I got addicted very quickly. And so I would go to the horse shows and I did the lead line, but my parents just didn't have the money um, to, to really invest into that being a full-time sport for me. But after I graduated college, uh, within a year, I bought my first horse and um, started buying other horses and breeding horses. I actually didn't start competing until after I had my daughter at the age of 39. Um, so I started competing in my 40s. Uh, and um, so I didn't, I didn't have the leg up of starting as a child, but um, you know, quickly became an obsession. Oh, I can imagine. You sound passionate about everything you do. So I knew that the passion for horses would have to be there too. So Michael, I want to hear a little bit about you and horses on a different note. Um, And I want to hear about your work, of course. And I have horses of my own, so I can appreciate the innovations that your system brings as far as their health and safety and welfare during diagnosis and treatment. So can you go into a little bit of detail about Prisma Imaging and what you've developed through your work? Well, thanks for that question, because one of my favorite things to do is talk about Prisma, especially with, uh, you know, with real horse enthusiasts uh, who are probably going to have a greater appreciation for what our for what our technology represents. But let me start off with, um, you know, just some basic background to put things into context. And, you know, I'm pretty certain that a large part of our listening audience already knows this, but I'm going to say it anyway. And that is that horses are prey animals. And what this means is that they're going to instinctively conceal any kind of injury or lameness. And this is typically because, you know, they don't want to be an easy meal, meal for a predator that's, you know, looking for the weak to, to find a kill. Another challenge is that, um, unlike Mr. Ed, our four-legged friends can't tell us when something's wrong with them. So again, these uh, undetected issues um, can, you know, develop into something that can ultimately become, uh, you know, a lot more serious. Um, so, you know, again, by the time an injury is is noticed, it might be too late, and that could uh, untimely uh, end the horse's career, or even worse. Um, so. Um, what our system does, and again, I'll, I'll try not to make it too technical, is that we're using robotics. And what the robotics do is they give access to virtually every region of the horse's anatomy while they're standing and conscious. And what's great about that is, and again, this is probably something else that the listening audience can appreciate that is involved with horses, is that we don't need to use anesthesia. So the horse is conscious and we're avoiding the risks, uh, again, which I think everybody knows it's you know serious injury or even death. So, I mean, I've spoken to a lot of equestrian and horse owners that, you know, they're just, they're just not going to subject the horses. So, again, our system avoids that. Another thing, too, which, again, not to get too far down in the weeds, is we're using two types of radiography. And what this does is it gives a system the ability to uh, do CT imaging of the head, neck, uh, and the most important part, the legs. And... Uh, again, this is really kind of the secret sauce, is that we can also image the high mass parts of the horse, including the axial skeleton, the abdomen, the hips, and the pelvis. So, you know, in speaking to the equine medical community about this, 
Um, the consensus was overwhelmingly positive that these advanced imaging capabilities are really going to be a true game changer that's going to help improve the healthy, the health, the safety, and the quality of life for our equine partners. Well, I, I know that working through a lameness issue with my own horse this over this past um, spring and summer, it's so frustrating. I have a wonderful farrier, wonderful vet, and the communication between us was going back and forth, trying to pinpoint where things might be happening. And it's like you said, they can't tell us. They're not Mr. Ed. So how can somebody like me find what you're doing? Have you sold any units? Is this is it going to market yet? And can we? how do we get a hold of it? Okay, well, first I want to make clear is that I made the deliberate decision not to sell any systems until they were 100, 100% ready, tested, and, and that's for a number of reasons. That's just how I do business. And there's been a couple of miscues out there in the marketplace, which, again, I don't want to spend our time on, on some other companies that attempted to create equine CT systems. And, I mean, there's certain deficiencies in these systems, which, again, I'm not going to get into now. Um, but that they just weren't ready to go to market. And that's that's just really unfortunate. I mean, these are expensive pieces of hardware. And if you're you know, taking money from somebody, you, you should be able to deliver what you're purporting to deliver. So, um, but what we are doing to prime sales in the future is that we've gone around to some of the larger, more prestigious equine veterinary practices, and we've gotten them to, to sign letters of intent. And uh, what this is doing is, is essentially just memorializing that when the systems are commercially ready, which is going to be about nine months after we complete our current equity raise, which I can talk a little bit a little bit about more later on. Um, and so we've got a few practices that have signed letters. And, and again, that's really one of our main initiatives. And we've got a, a whole bunch more in the pipeline. Um, as far as learning about Prisma, visiting our website is probably the best way, prismaimaging.com, just how it sounds. Um, you can learn a lot of, uh, about our technology there, more than what I'm able to provide here. Um, you can learn how to get access to or how to buy a system when they're available. Uh, you can also learn about the, our current equity raise and how you could participate in that. But just in general, um, you know, how we're really interested in expanding our community of people that you know, share our passion for figuring out you know, a better way uh, for the care and uh, quality of life for our equine partners. We have some very innovative vets here in South Carolina, so keep us in mind as you're as you're planning out your expansion. Because I love that. So, I mean, what is your background? How this is very technical. Is your background in in this type of field, or, or how, what gave you the idea to develop this type of thing? Well, um, you know, most people assume when they find out what I'm doing now that my background is in equine veterinary uh, or engineering or something and like that. Neither, neither is true. And few people, including myself, would have forecasted that I'd be doing now what I'm doing. Um, so, you know, it really is kind of a zigzag line in, in how I got to what I'm doing now. Um, so just about me, I, I had my MBA and probably the first half of my career, I was involved in uh, finance and operations. I held a number of positions at public and private companies. And in 2000, I decided to take the leap and I moved from my corporate career and I started a business in the housewares industry. Yes, that's right. Housewares, kitchen gadgets. Again, not going to really be a, a strong <laughs> clue about what I'm doing now. Right. But in any case, um, you know, I, I started that business, uh, built it and, and successfully sold it. And so in figuring out what I was going to do next, came across this really cool idea to use robotics to image horses. So I did some research, like I mentioned before, um, and I was able to find out that there was a severe deficiency in how horses were imaged, diagnosed and ultimately, um, you know, in, the, in their care. Um, I was also able to, you know, do some research into the demographics and I was absolutely blown away uh, to learn that horses contribute over $122 billion to our nation's economy and 1.7 million jobs. And that's not insignificant. I also was able to find out, and you know, you're just hearing it in the, in this in this conversation we're having, and that there's just an, an unbridled passion that horse owners have for their horses, and that they're going to seek out the best care available for them. So, you know, this technology is not just for the top competing horses; it's really it's for a, a wider uh, horses, including you know, just recreational horses. That again, some people 
We'll do absolutely everything. So I knew the demand was there. Um, and so just in, in putting these things together, it, it gave me the green light. Again, back to the earlier question, uh, in doing my homework, knowing the demand was there, knowing that the technology was manageable um, and that, you know, it was something that was, you know, viable in that, you know, one of the things I like to say, and especially with, with the testing and uh, proof of concepts that we've done during the four years that we've been developing the technology is that there's really nothing left where there's any innovation or development risk, uh, meaning that, you know, we're really close to commercial readiness and it's really just a matter of time and money to get us there. Wow. That's exciting news. So I have to ask, do you ride? Do you have your own horse? Uh, you know, currently I don't. Uh, my, my, my relationship with the uh, with the equine industry and, and, and being a question, I did ride when I was a child. I went away to camp. I did some, some showing, some jumping. Um, I was born and raised in New York. And unfortunately, for lifestyle purposes, it became really difficult. And so it, it just kind of fell away. And I'd say, you know, during my adult life, I've got my best friend owns some thoroughbreds. So, you know, we go twice a year to the races at Keeneland. Um, and, and so I've been kind of connected to the industry that way. So I, I feel confident that if I got on a horse today, I wouldn't embarrass myself, but, uh, no, I, I have I, one for you, Michael. Uh, <laughs> I, okay. I have one that boat attended, um, during a class up in New York, came out on three legs with the blue ribbon and, uh, she hasn't competed ever since. <laughs> um, and she's finally recovered three years later. So if you're looking for a, a challenge, let me know when you come to Wellington, I can put you well, on Jada. <laughs> I love that. I love I'll that. Keep that in mind. To some, a donkey is a beast of burden and a nuisance, but to many, is a companion, a breadwinner, a friend, and a helper. On average, here with our calculations, uh, a donkey okay. will bring 1,200 shillings into a household every day. Lose that donkey, then you've lost your livelihood. Losing a donkey means you've no food for the evening. Your family doesn't, your children do not go to school. It means a lot. In Kenya alone, there are four operational donkey slaughterhouses located in Baringo, Nakuru, Machakos and Trukana counties with a combined capacity of slaughtering approximately 1,000 donkeys per day. The massive slaughter is however not fueled by the local demand for meat but by the surging new global craze on donkey hides and skins to drive the manufacture of ijiao. So, Lisa, I have to ask a little bit about more of the work that Brook USA does. Um, is there a project in particular that you find really moving and something that you'd like to talk about that's happening right now? Yeah, so one of the questions, Julianne, that you asked earlier is what does a board member do? Um, certainly, it's a big res responsibility of anybody who uh, is involved with the board of directors of Brook USA. You know, we're very heavily uh, um, focused on fundraising so that we can support all of the initiatives kind of across the globe. Uh, that we take interest in. Um, and so we review the proposals that come in from various organizations. Um, most recently with everything that's happened with COVID, we became a little bit more focused in the U.S. because of the, the hardships uh, that people were experiencing economically who cared for horses, who were retired or injured or, or off the track. Um, but typically prior to the pandemic, we were really looking at more global projects and in areas of very strong need uh, where there are things that, you know, take place in nations where there's a high degree of, of poverty and drought. And so one of the projects that we really conceived last year and um, executed at the end of last year and into this year, and it continues, is um, the idea of buy a donkey a drink. And you'll see this on the Brook USA website if anybody is interested. Um, and to give an example of that, Ethiopia is one of those countries that comes to mind where there is just severe economic hardship. You know, that they're the, the drought, the situation with your economy, the extreme poverty. And so even the idea of, you know, being able to provide clean water for the donkeys as they're really kind of laboring alongside their owners to do the most basic things in life to support, um, you know, getting food and, and plowing their fields. 
Um, they didn't have access to water. And so the goal of Buy a Donkey a Drink as we launched it in the fall of last year was to raise $1 million um, in a year's time. Um, and the idea was to basically be able to use that money um, to support 11,500 donkeys um, in the Ethiopia area where we could give them access to horses just by the simple fact that we were able to build 50-foot water troughs. And that was important because you can think about the mileage that these donkeys and these horses have to put on in their daily um, regime and everything that's expected of them. One 50-foot trough can feed up to 340 animals. And so really, really basic, not a big investment, but a big impact um, on the safety and well-being uh, of the equines, the working donkeys and mules, and subsequently having a very big, big and positive impact on the families they support. So I love to buy a, a donkey a drink. I think it's a phenomenal effort in, in the most impoverished areas of the world. It's, it's really important that we continue to invest in, in these very basic necessities. I have to agree because of all the ones that I've heard about with women for donkeys and everything else, the water issue in those troughs, it's just, I saw a picture where there were just hundreds of heads of donkeys down in the trough. And I thought, you know, that old, you can lead a horse to water thing. You don't have to make these guys drink. They're desperate for it. And now so they're desperate for it. We take a lot for granted uh, being yeah. in you know, one of the, the, the best countries in the world, uh, you know, that we have access to water, but imagine a place where that's just a hardship within itself. Um, so those are the types of significant investments that really result in significant change um, and opportunity to improve the, the welfare of the communities and the horses that support um, these folks. That is really, really special. And like you said, to support the donkeys, but also those people. So are there any worries or concerns that you can think of with the future of Brook USA? Um, listen, I think it's no secret um, right now that, you know, with the pandemic, we've gotten very internally focused because we've not been in such an unexpected hardship, you know, where people that are used to having jobs um, are not. And so, as I said, we're doing a little bit more focus, um, you know, probably in 2020 and continuing on to 2021 to support efforts in the U.S., um, you know, I think everybody's seen it. In the, in the New York Times recently, um, there was an article that talked about kind of uh, the nonprofit sector and the negative impact uh, on fundraising. So have we experienced that? Yes, to some degree. I think an independent sector basically said that 7% of nonprofits in the U.S. are expected to close um, as a result of the pandemic. Um, that being said, we, we've survived thus far. And I think now that we know that the vaccine's on the horizon, we expect to be able to recover very strongly as we continue through 2021. But we were still able to grant more money than ever before to our sister organization, Brooke, and their global affiliates, um, and to many other charities that submit um, kind of their proposals to us um, throughout the world and, and really align with our mission. So I'm confident that our future's bright, um, we'll continue to grow. Uh, remember that we just got started as Brook USA as an independent entity in 2016. We've quadrupled our income um, through 2020. And so when this thing all gets resolved, we need to get back to the business of, you know, counting on our very important donors to continue on our mission. So um, we're, we're very optimistic about our future. But oh, it sounds like it. I mean, the future for the for the organization. What is your future? What is what do you have in, in mind? Um, your future I'm plans? an entrepreneur at heart. Um, so <laughs> I am doing a new startup uh, here in Florida that I can't get into a lot right now. Um, but uh, back to my roots in healthcare advertising, there seems to be a need for uh, people. There are more. Uh, biotech companies, pharmaceutical companies that are uh, relocating to, to the South for various economic reasons. Um, and so uh, my plan is to work with some folks that I had tremendous relationships with in the past um, and bring a healthcare agency here uh, to the Southeastern United States uh, with potentially a focus, what we're looking at is a focus on clinical trials and recruitment, because that seems to be an area of need for our pharma clients. Um, again, resulting from COVID, not being able to heat, uh, hit their enrollment goals uh, because patients are really reluctant to go out um, to the medical centers and, and really participate in these trials. So that's some of the things we're working on. All the work that you've done with pharmaceuticals and both of you in healthcare. I'm the daughter of a, a former pharmacist who had little small town drugstores when I was growing up. And I just watched that side of healthcare. And um, I just appreciate that, that side of what you do. So I look forward to following what, what happens for you in the future with that endeavor for sure. Thanks. And this kind of speaks to the cause, but ironically through Brooke, um, and I, I recently took a 
course from MIT over the summer um, for artificial intelligence and healthcare. And so we recently landed um, a global animal health project. So we're also expanding into animal health um, because people that really are in that space are, are trying to understand how to take some of the principles of successful drug launches and apply it uh, to the animal health world. So it really ties in that passion that I have for, for animals. And I have a lot running around the farm down here in Wellington. <laughs> Gosh, you are busy. I knew it. That's awesome. So Michael, you too. Now I have, I've heard from the Brook USA team that you Brook USA is your charity of choice. Um, and you mentioned earlier in the call an innovative revenue sharing structure. Can you tell us what that means? Give us the details. What is that all about? Sure. Well, first let me put put some things into context. You know, Prisma, we're currently in our final phase of R&D and we're in the home stretch, pardon the horse metaphor, uh, to graduate to commercial operations. So once this occurs, we'll be able to transition from spending money on development to generating income. So after initially learning about USA, which I I just uh, fortunately heard from a colleague, I brainstormed with their CEO, Emily Doolin, who's been absolutely wonderful to work with. And the structure we came up with was once Prisma starts commercial operations and generates income, a percentage is going to be donated to Brook USA. So what this adds up to is that based on our current financial projections, this has the potential for a six-figure donation each year once Prisma reaches stabilized commercial operations. I really like this structure because it, it aligns Prisma and Brook USA's interests to support our mutual shared objective to promote health, welfare, performance, and the quality of, of life for our equine partners. That is just an amazing thing to hear. I mean, the the forethought that you have in, in putting that forward is, is really special. You know, I came up with this kind of, you know, very creative idea. And when I was able to get in touch with Emily, which was very easy to do, she was very accessible. She was very responsive and and just incredibly open-minded because, I mean, in my experience, people that in her position, typically, you know, if, if the square peg doesn't fit in the square hole, it has no place. But, you know, she obviously had an appreciation for what we were trying to do. And as I said, I really love the idea of having our interests aligned where I'm trying to bring this technology for the benefit of the uh, equine industry and the healthcare and welfare of horses, which is going to, you know, in in a lot of ways, since you know Brook USA is in the equine health business as well, um, and you know, and I will talk about you know some of the other things that that motivated me, um, but um, you know, I just want to make it clear that it's it's always been. Uh, part of Prisma's mission to provide support to the equine community beyond what our technology is going to do in terms of supporting their health and welfare. Um, but what really impressed me about Brooke was their mission to marry both the uh, humanitarian elements of the equine population, but also take into consideration the human impact uh, and the people that rely on these animals for their livelihood and sustenance. So, um, you know, again, I, I just really was impressed with both the altruistic and humanitarian humanitarian elements that that Brook USA represented. So, Julianne, if I could add, I, I want to uh, reiterate how important my work with Brook USA will continue to be um, throughout the tenure of my board position. Um, you know just recently having executed the white party for Brook USA, um, you know, we're going to be taking those learnings and applying it to kind of a post uh, pandemic, uh, get back to where it was before. Um, but it's also important, I think, you know, in terms of my focus for 2021 and through 2022 uh, to work with my fellow board members and the staff of Brook USA, including Emily, who's amazing as is Amanda and Kendall and everybody else to really share the positive outcomes of the Brook USA work um, and really grow the depth and the scope of our programming efforts. So that's been interesting points of conversations that we've had looking at some of the, the grants that we do provide and some of the work that's being done that we want to continue to support. And how do we do a better job assessing the impact of the investment of our donors um, so that we can get a little bit more sophisticated in defining what the ultimate opportunities are for Brook USA in the pipeline of, of 2021 and, and through uh, 2022. So... Well, didn't I want think, to forget to mention that. 
Well, no, I'm glad you did because to me, it's been interesting getting to know the staff. And, and you mentioned Kendall and Amanda also. I, I think of Emily, Kendall, and Amanda sort of all together because they're all so creative in the ways they come up with thing, with ideas. I mean, even podcasting wasn't something that they were considering before, but they thought, why not? Because the more they could get the word out about what you're doing, you know, to a different audience, the better. And so um, through, like you said, the Sunset Polo and White Party and even the virtual auction, since we aren't able to do things in person, um, it, there are just so many opportunities. So creative board, creative staff, I think that's that's going to be really special for y'all moving forward. And hopefully, you know, the vaccine is, like you said, we're, we're on the right track with it. We should get there. I heard uh, Johnson and Johnson should have one available by the end of this month. And I think it's really important for our work. I mean, part of the reason I was so enthusiastic about joining this board is I've seen all these amazing educational programs that are being done, executed all over the world. And other Brook USA board members have had the benefit of being able to participate um, but very quickly after I joined the board, the pandemic struck. And so it's really limited our ability to travel um, and participate in some of the events that we're funding. So I'm hoping that things start to open up rather quickly so I get to kind of maximize my experience of being on the board and witness some of um, the really valuable investments that our, our donors are helping to contribute to and, and seeing kind of the boots on the ground and how it impacts those communities locally. Because I think that's that human impact and and having talked to other people that have done that experience, it's something that I really want to walk away with uh, when I've completed my term on the board. So I'm looking forward to the opportunity to travel again and participate in those programs. <laughs> so Michael, is there anything else you want us to know about your partnership with Brook USA before we go? Well, again, I just feel incredibly fortunate that I learned about their cause. I, and I really, I never envisioned, um, you know, this is, this, you know, if you take a step back, this is probably you know, early in our in our company evolution to be making this type of commitment. But, you know, again, once I learned about the, uh, you know, the, the dual cause causes that that Brook USA uh, supports, it became a no brainer um, to want to affiliate. And again, it's not it's not just because it's part of our mission, because it's important to me to be able to give back and help support the industry. But again, the humanitarian component to what to what Brook USA does, I think, is really, really terrific. And, um, you know, I'm very excited about being uh, being part of that. How about you, Lisa? What else would you like us to know before we close? Um, I just want to continue to thank uh, the donors uh, that have really made us the success that we are, allowed us to experience the growth, uh, the people who, you know, who are, are a part of a community of equines where they want to see um, the good work that we're doing at Brook USA really extended to the broader <laughs> countries in the world and, and really help, you know, look at there's a different side of what working equines bring. Um, so our donors have been incredibly um, gracious, very thoughtful. It, it, we're working, you know, been working with them again and just got this white party executed. Um, and we're reminded of how fortunate we are to have such influential people who put their money to good causes. And so we just want to continue to build, I think, that community of donors um, and let people know that the small checks are equally important as the big checks. And the people that we get to meet along the way who continue to learn about our mission and our success um, and that's just part of the journey, I think, as a board member that I will always um, feel very fortunate to be a part of. So that's what I'll say. <laughs> well, it's special work. It really is. So thank you both for sharing with us today. And um, I look forward to seeing how the rest of this year goes. All right. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. This episode of Brook USA on the Road has been brought to you by the Equus Film and Arts Fest. You can find us at www.equusfilmfestival.net. So, so, Julia and Jeff, welcome to the podcast, both of you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I can't think of a better combination for a phone call, for a Zoom call, as we're doing everything. It's, it's called Brook USA on the road, but we're actually Zooming everywhere these days in a virtual sense. But to have the two of you together in a conversation is perfect to me because um, 
that that combination of equine care between a veterinarian and a farrier is so crucial. Um, I, I was reminded of that this summer as I dealt with some lameness issues with my own horse. And I had, you know, from the x-rays of the vet being sent over to my farrier and everything else, it's it's um, definitely a full equine care situation. So to have the two of you together is just wonderful. How well do the two of you know each other? Have you met before in person? I don't think so. I have not, no. Okay, well, then this is going to be even more interesting. I guess I should say introductions. So, Julia and Jeff, I'm glad that the two of you can be with us. So, Julia, we'll start with you, actually, because I had a chance to look over your resume, your your CV. And, I mean, obviously, you have a lot of experience in equine care. And as the executive director, you lead the Minnesota Board of Veterinary Medicine. Um, you have a practice there. How did you get involved in equine care in the first place? My parents made the offer of ballet lessons or writing lessons when I was five. It was a foregone conclusion. My mom uh, rode when she was younger. She got her passion for horses from her grandfather, who actually went to one of the schools that had a cavalry unit. So, yeah, it's been a great ride. It's a huge part of my life, and I will never give it up. And do you have horses right now? Yes, we have seven. Would you like one? Oh, no. Actually, I have some of my own. I think, I think I'm going to pass on that. Jeff, how about you? Do you want to you want to take one on or do you have your own as well? No, no. I am, I have rid myself of all horses. Well, I can't say that I blame you. I mean, we always ask the guests if they ride, but for the for the ones who, who do have their own horses and do their own care at home, it's always um, a little bit of that look in their eyes where they're busy and working and all that. So it's always a lot of fun though. So, so Julia, how long have you been involved in with Brook USA and you're on the board of directors? I guess you probably have a pretty unique role because with your credentials and track record and everything else, um, you're, you're unique. So what would you say about Brook USA and your role on the board? Well, I'm very fortunate, number one, to have joined the board about a year ago. And it's been incredible learning experience for me so far to see how this great organization has been so effective in fundraising. And even more important is to share that passion for improving the health and welfare of the working horses, donkeys, and mules. So what do I bring to the program? How did I get so lucky? My background with working equids goes back a long way. And in the last... It's probably 12 years now, I've been leading programs to bring veterinary care and education to the countries where the programs are desperately needed. So my work has focused on um, delivering care, delivering uh, education, and also training my successors. So it's been a, a great three-pronged approach uh, from the get-go, it's always been an effort paired with veterinary students and young veterinarians that have an interest in learning about horses. So that's what's been unique. And now with Brook USA, having this program experience, experience writing grants, experience evaluating grants, I bring that to the table and can share that with Brook USA. Jeff, I didn't see that you're a board member, but it looks like you're very also very involved with Brook USA. How did you meet up with the organization and become a part of it? Well, it's kind of a funny story. I kind of backed my way into it, didn't have a clue who Brook <laughs> USA was. And I uh, I went to the Tron uh, Equestrian Center. They were having an art gallery there, which... Uh, I was part of uh, part of that. They have a big poster of me that Monica, I'm not sure if you guys know Monica, but she's a photographer. She had taken a picture of me working and she had me do some poses and things. But then also Tammy was there, Tammy Tappan. Mm-hmm. And I met you guys through, through Tammy. Okay. And she made the, and she made the introduction and, uh, and, uh, she had donated a beautiful painting of a couple of donkeys, which I purchased, uh, and it went from there. 
that well. I have to tell you, yes, I have seen some of Monica's work. Actually, we we hosted. Um, she came to Camden when we had our first Equus Film Festival tour stop there and, and did an art exhibit or photography exhibit. And so when Emily sent the picture of you that that she had that Monica had taken, <laughs> I was just um, was floored. You, the, your tattoos are very artistic. So I really enjoyed oh, seeing no, Thank that. you. Julia, if you hadn't seen them yet, they're gorgeous. And um, of course, Monica's work is always, always wonderful. And Tammy's as well. It's so funny to connect the dots because in speaking with Dwayne Hildreth, who is also a board member for Brook USA, I'm sure, Julia, you would know him. Um, he met the organization through Tammy and my partner, Bruce Anderson, and I know Tammy. And so they're just all the dots being connected. And it, it's it's wonderful to have that network and to be able to meet new people with, with some of the same interests and, of course, the same passion for Brook USA. So, Jeff, you know, I've seen also you were Team Farrier for WEG. You've been involved in, in the Landrum Tryon area for quite some time as a farrier. Can you share with everybody, first of all, what do you love? Do you love that area? I'm sure you do, but I'm just going to ask. Do, how long have you been there, and um, what is what is your job like in the Tryon area? I uh, I've been physically here for about three years, uh, maybe four. But I've, I've I've come from just up the road in Asheville, so I've worked here pretty much my whole life. the The area is great, you know. It's a, it's a beautiful. You're 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 an hour from anything you want to be go to. You know, do you want to go to Flatland, Greenville? Or do you want to go to the mountains of Asheville? Or do you want to go snow skiing in Boone? So it, you know, it offers the best, I think, in in this country for year round. The winters are mild, you know, so and people people still shoot their horses here during the winter time. So you know, I don't have to go hungry <laughs> through the through the winter months. <laughs> but That's I also I also work I also work in Ocala. Uh, one one week a month through the season, January, February, March. And if you guys haven't seen the World Equestrian Center down there, I, I'd recommend going there because it's a Disney world. I can't wait to see it. Well, and, and so you are a bit of a traveler then. You're back and forth between the two areas. Um, I'm also interested because I read that you were part of an exchange program through, through a certification. I, I know that there are international... <clears throat> certification, there are high, high standards of credentials for farriers. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think you hosted someone from um, overseas at one point. Even England. That. From England. And England has probably some of the best education and farriery in the world. And uh, I didn't want any of those limeys to have anything on me. So I'm like, well, I'm going to be as educated as they are. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was a joke. That was a joke. <laughs> but they, uh, I just, I just really liked the educational program and what they, what they demand of their farriers over there. Because here, to be a farrier, you can go to the local store, buy an anvil, and call yourself a farrier, and then you get told how to, how to do your trade and how to run your trade by veterinarians and most veterinarians like farriers don't know what they're talking about when they're talking about podiatry. So, you know, and, and to me, if you're going to be a tradesman, <clears throat> at least, at least be a tradesman, know, know your trade. Mm -hmm. So, so you've taken part of in that certification program already? Yes, I have. And I, I got their, uh, associate, uh, so it's an AWCF. It, their uh, their associate is is now I'm licensed to do therapeutic work in England or anywhere in their um, the UK. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, I'm but, gonna so there if you do if you don't have a license there uh, you're you're not allowed to do your to do the work. So. Okay, so it's different. The United States is a little bit different from from many of the countries overseas. I'm sure. You know, um, they're a lot different. It's, it's just there's no regulations on my trade here. As far as Brook USA and some of that overseas work, are there plans in place? Do you know of plans in place to combat the lack of farriery in some of these developing countries? Um, as far as yeah, it, it's. Yeah, <clears throat> through through social media and through uh, 
Worshipful Company of Farriers out of England and several other organizations. Yes, you know, we've reached out to Brazil, South Africa, has got a certification program now through through uh, through the AWCF, the Worshipful Company of Farriers. Um, I was in Malaysia. It's pretty it's pretty weak there, and um, Brazil is pretty strong. So those areas, you know, the, in South America, I know I was down in uh, Colombia, South America. Uh, it's pretty weak there. Mexico, it's pretty weak. But all these all these countries have a huge interest in podiatry. It's just you just got to offer it to them. You got to make it available. And that's pretty much why I joined Brooks is because that's their goal is to is to benefit the animal through education. Julia, I've been told that you have an extensive background and experience working with equines in the developing world. Are there differences that you have found from country to country when it comes to equine welfare? Or do you think there are problems that kind of go from place to place and are similar? Are there some places worse than others? The condition of the animals is going to be, as you've suggested, highly variable between countries, but also on the basis of climate, what kind of work they're doing, and the level of education of the people. So as a range, uh, one of the first places I worked in Central America was in a big city, San Pedro Sula, where the poorest of the poor got themselves a horse, a poorly built cart, and hauled the least desirable stuff around on the streets of San Pedro Sula. And they didn't know how to feed the horses. They didn't know how to use harness, um, but they were so grateful to have a job hauling garbage or concrete blocks or something like that. Mm -hmm. But if you go, for example, up into the mountains, the horses might be carrying milk. They might be carrying crops. Uh, horses are used a lot in the uh, palm oil industry, where they bring the kernels from the groves of the palm trees to the processing center where they extract the oil from the palm nuts. But it, when you get into the really arid climates like Asia, India, uh, there the problems are compounded by the heat. And one of the most helpful things that Brook USA has been able to fund are places for those animals that work so hard to get water. And even just getting a drink of water becomes a life-limiting factor for these animals. So yes, highly variable. And that's part of the challenge as well as the, oh my gosh, I got to learn about this um, for each place that you work. If you look continent to continent, some of the diseases that impact these animals is different as well. And so that's a huge deal, particularly in an area where the owners of these animals are clueless about the disease. Parasites seem to be everywhere. Well, are there certain areas that you feel more drawn to than others? Which Have you been able to visit any of the sites that you were just mentioning? I had um, an international upbringing, so I've been lots of places growing up. But as a veterinarian, um, I've traveled extensively as well in multiple roles. So uh, I've seen how they care for the horses in the U.S. I've seen in Mexico. I've seen in five different Latin, uh, Central American countries. I've been through many countries in South America, uh, I've been to Ethiopia, Rwanda, India, Thailand, so pretty extensive. Wow, it sounds like it. I, what struck me in an earlier conversation on this podcast was that somebody was telling me about the brick kilns in India, which I just didn't have any idea that this was even something, a problem that existed. But they described the donkeys living right there in, in the homes with people because that was the only place there was for them to live. And so it just, it struck me that, you know, the, it's, it's a problem for the animals. It's also a problem for the people. So I love the fact that Brook USA has the programs that are helping the animals, but in doing so, the humans are helped as well. Can you give a few examples that you know of of this? I know it would help the listeners to know a little bit more about that. Yes. And it's part of the feel good about Brook USA's work that you're not just helping the equids. It's so clear when you're working on the ground 
that you are helping the family as much or more than you're helping the animal. And you said it really well that these animals are their treasure. They serve as the everything that needs to be moved pretty much. They also can be rented out when they're not working for my little family you can get a little bit of income by renting them out to um, another family. You know, these a lot of these places, the people are living in tin shacks with dirt floors. They're lucky if they have electricity. And one of the things that's important is that they not lose that animal. So if they don't have another way to um, keep it with them, sure, bring it in the house. We can use the Manure from that animal for lighting, running my stove. I mean, I'd live in the barn if you let me. <laughs> well, I, I actually do. My house is on top of my barn, so I, I know that feeling. <laughs> but it, the thing, too, is I just I learned about families that the donkey theft was such a problem in Africa. And that, you know, they have to, like you said, not only just because there's nowhere else for them to be, but just for that protection of that animal. So you're absolutely right. So, so Jeff, I know that you deal a lot with the people and, and that whole communication thing, as Julia was mentioning, being able to talk to people um, about these issues how do you feel about communication with an owner, whether it's it's through the programs we're talking about or, or just in general? I know some people just have a problem communicating. I'm lucky I don't because I talk to my farrier all the time. But some people have a problem communicating with their farrier. Why do you think that is? I think, I think the biggest breakdown in, the, in farrier communication, whether it be with the horse owner, the vet, or... Uh, information that is attained off the internet is the climate is so different in this country in different areas that you're at. So, you know, people forget that these animals are walking around on a keratinized uh, hairball. So the climate <clears throat> has a lot to do with the condition of their feet. So there is so many opinions on how to fix certain issues that, you know, what question can you ask? And, and then what horse rules, most of them are not as educated as they need to be. And when you question them, they're, they're thinking that you're questioning their ability. Does that make sense? I'm lucky because I'm friends with my vet. I'm friends with my farrier. My farrier is married to my trainer. So there's this whole thing of communication when there is a problem. Um, I can describe it to one and they're sharing information with each other. But in the past, I had times where I, I you know, 20, 30 years ago, I had barriers that I didn't know very well. And I was stupid because I couldn't describe things to my vet or my farrier and didn't know what I was talking about. So um, I guess maybe that's part of it. But I, I wondered with you if you had found that as well. So. It is. And, and it's just, uh, just, I just think that the, that's why I joined the uh, Worshipful Company of Farriers out of the UK is, is if you're going to be a tradesman, I think that you should be a tradesman. Don't 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 go into it for the money. You know, go into it because you love you love what you do, and and we're we're doing it for the love of the animal. Anytime you ask the farrier why why they're taking such a beating their whole lives trying to take care of these animals, it's because we love animals. We're animal lovers. Very few farriers you ever see that doesn't travel around with a dog. You know, it's just we like animals around us. That is so true. So true. So, so Julia, hearing about your travels, um, I, I'm, I'm happy to be able to say I've heard that Brook USA is also expanding a little bit and extending some into this hemisphere and um, improving equine welfare among Native American tribes. And that's, that's kind of at the top of the list right now. Can you tell us a little bit about that and share with, some, share with us some information, even though it might be preliminary? I think it's a much needed and very exciting new direction for Brook USA to be looking into. And the preliminary plans are very sound in terms of the process. So we know there's a problem on multiple reservations. We know that the horses need multiple things, but foot care is really a big deal. But we also know that culturally, you have to approach it very sensitively because um, 
teaching has to be in a very respectful manner. So one of the strategies is going to be to focus on the youth um, who tend to be more open-minded. They're eager to learn a skill that they can use to um, earn a living. And I think with that approach, they will not only be successful in funding projects that work, but they will also be able to share what is learned, the methods um, with other groups, because there's no way a single organization can reach all the reservations. And part of the problem is that it's hard to make a living on the reservation. Um, and so teaching the folks that are there makes a huge amount of sense because even if they can't make a living as a farrier, they can make some kind of earning living, um, helping the animals, particularly um, in areas where they're working a lot. And some of the reservations they're used for maybe herding cattle, um, for you know going on their culturally important rides. But the tourist horses in particular work long hours on bad terrain. And if you think about the importance of the hoof, as Jeff just said, uh, the care of the foot is paramount to keep these animals comfortable and to promote their longevity um, as a source of income for these people um, that really benefit from that. I, I think you've summed it up right there in a nutshell is that it all has to fit together and that the hoof care and what Jeff does is crucial and the work that you do as a veterinarian, um, if, if we can't get that this out to people, um, we're, we're not going to be able to improve. So as we mentioned in the beginning, the kind of work that both of you do for the betterment of, of horse care, equine care with through Brook USA and now expanding into North America as well is so important. So thank you both for what you do. We really appreciate hearing from you and thanks for spending time with us today. Yeah, you're very welcome. You're it's been welcome. my pleasure. If you'd like to support Brook USA and help this work continue, you can donate by texting ORANGE to 71760.